0: Today, we're talking with Dr. Kirsten Johnson from the Famine Early Warning Systems Network, or FUSENET. In this episode, we discuss what FUSENET is and the critical data her team analyzes to provide acute food insecurity projections, the current complex global food insecurity situation, and the multiple factors at play, including the ongoing crisis in Ukraine. And we'll also learn what Kirsten finds hopeful about our future. We hope you enjoy the episode. And welcome to Through the Human Geography Lens, a podcast brought to you by the Worldwide Human Geography Data Working Group, or WWHGD. I'm Terry Ryan. And I'm Gwyneth Holt. And today we're here with our guest, Dr. Kirsten Johnson, the team leader for the Famine Early Warning System Network, or FUSENET, management team in the U.S. Agency for International Development, Bureau for Humanitarian Assistance. Kirsten, thank you for joining us today. It's great to see you. Thank you
1: so much for inviting us to join, join with you today. It's great to be here.
0: So, could you tell us what is FuseNet? Okay, so
1: FuseNet is is the colloquial acronym uh, for, as you mentioned before, the Famine Early Warning Systems Network. Um, it is the global gold standard for acute food insecurity early warning, um, and you know, making a distinction there between uh, more chronic food insecurity. Um, and FuseNet's primary objective is to ensure that USAID and the global humanitarian community have the food security and climate-related information that they need, um, especially for uh, for USAID to ensure timely, efficient, and appropriate humanitarian food assistance. So our, our primary mandate is to make sure that you know with the scarce uh, scarce humanitarian resources available to us uh, as part of the global community, we make sure that those. Those resources are going to the places where people are in most dire and critical need. And to, you know, to do that, you have to, make, um, you have to have the evidence on which to base those decisions, right? And so FuseNet's entire uh, mandate is, is to provide that evidence base for, for that critical decision making.
0: So that's interesting. So, do you have then essentially a, a team of researchers uh, looking for different indicators? And, and what would those indicators be?
1: Does FuseNet have a team? Um, Yeah, so uh, maybe we'll start with the net part of Fusenet, so network. That network component is fundamental to Fusenet being able to do its work. Fusenet is structured as a partnership network. So uh, when you talk about do we have a team, Fusenet partners with NASA, uh, NOAA, USGS, U.S. Geological Survey, um, U.S. Department of Agriculture, um, these are all intergovernmental partners that make critical contributions of their technical expertise to FUSENET's mission. mission. Um, similarly, we also include among our direct partners, uh, partners um, University of California, Santa Barbara, and University of Maryland. And they're really critical also in helping to generate climate science, agricultural production and forecasts, all of these that inform um, FUSENET's global food security outlet outlooks. Those are just the partners that are primarily focused on the science, the agroclimatology, satellite remote sensing data. Um, We also work with contractors that carry out task orders to do the work in the field. So here, um, regional scientists are really critical. The early warning team's country office staff, where they're actually present in the countries where we're working, they're able to deliver in-country knowledge and experience um, and perspectives that really set, uh, we feel, set FuseNet's um, information uh, integrity kind of apart from the rest of the field. Um, we also partner with the national governments uh, and their ministries, like Ministries of Health and Agriculture, you know, other UN agencies, regional agencies like ICPAC in, in Kenya, and of course the IPC, which is the Integrated Food Security phase classification entities. It's like a global strategic program that provides support to the the technical working groups in each country that hosts uh, an IPC working group um, to help take a standardized approach to categorizing the, the severity and extent of acute food insecurity in the countries where we work. So all of that, that exchange across all of these partners is really what Provides the um, this really strong foundational grounding of evidence and expert opinion um, that that is essential to putting together those good projections of acute food insecurity um, in the world in the world today.
0: That is a network. <laughs> it's, it's,
1: it's that's what it takes, really. All right. Yeah. Wow. Uh, so you asked about what kinds of data. Um, I mentioned agroclimatology. Um, there's also uh, data that that we gather. Um, usually, it's from partners like the UN, but um, that are that are gathering it in the field. Sometimes, uh, FuseNet itself does primary uh, data collection, um, especially in terms of market prices and sometimes cross-border trade data. Surveys include data on livelihoods, like what are the things that people do to earn the income or uh, grow the food that they need to meet their basic needs. Uh, again data on climate-related events like drought, floods, and other hazards, even um, expanding now to incorporate information on uh, conflict uh, from our partner, ACLET, information on uh, disease uh, like COVID-19, which generated a global food security crisis that we're still grappling with, um, even as Mm -hmm. the Ukraine crisis has precipitated um, yet another uh, crisis on top of that.
2: So that's a lot of data. Is it publicly available? Is it in a place where people can go and access it and understand it? Is it in a place where everything is already analyzed or are those discrete pieces of information? Can you also access those those data? Okay. So um,
1: let me start with our products that may be best known. So FUSNA has been around since 1985 and generated analyses that are already, you know, data are analyzed, written up um, into an analysis and published as a text-based document. Um, those have been uh, and continue to be available uh, again uh, on our website, FUSE.net, um, but also, a vi- uh, you know, you can sign up for the listserv, right? And you can select which, if you're interested in a particular region, you can select which um, kind of already drafted analyses based on data um, uh, that you're interested in. Um, so I think that that's been kind of the mainstay of the analytical products that we put out there. But um, I think it's in particular for, for this audience, folks are really interested in getting into the data for themselves, right? Yeah. The first stop for people to go to when they want to access FuseNet's data is probably going to be the Fusenet data center on our website. So this can be found at Fuse.net forward slash data. Um, And here, like these are all the data that the public can easily access um, that are related to our food security. Um, These data include um, food security classifications. What does that mean? So these are the mapped areas indicating, you know, whether an area is in, you know, phase one of like there's minimum food insecurity. So we don't. Um, urgently need to think about getting um, uh, humanitarian food assistance there, to phase two, which is stressed, phase three, which is crisis, where we really need to make sure on an emergency basis that we get humanitarian food assistance there, Um, up to phase phase four, emergency, and um, phase five, uh, catastrophe, uh, and possibly famine. So, you know, the food security classifications data Provides those um, uh, shapefiles that that will characterize geographies with those uh, classifications, and those are available across countries and over time. Um, <laughs> relatedly, um, you know, if you're uh, classifying geographies, you need to have a good set of standardized administrative boundaries. So uh, one of the things that FuseNet has done um, is to make sure, and I think this is a it's a perpetual task, but to make sure that if you want to look at these data over time, and you want to look at the same geographies over time, you need to um, have a consistent set of administrative boundaries. So Fusenet's really done a lot of work in that regard. Um, There's an opportunity uh, to download livelihood zones. So what's a livelihood zone? Um, It's a way of characterizing um, a geography and the nature of the communities that live within that geography, um, how do people, and especially the poorest people living there, how do they uh, make a living, right? What, do, what are the things that they are primarily doing to, to put food on the table and to meet their basic needs? Um, so in places, for example, in geographies that are close to the coast or close to lakes, um, a key livelihood might be uh, being a fisher person, at least part of the year, maybe other parts of the year, they're doing other things. Um, so that kind of livelihood is going to be really different than um, somebody who's living kind of inland and um, maybe in, a, a semi-arid, in semi-arid lands in northern Kenya, and they're pastoralists. And so that's their livelihood. So the uh, livelihood zones, um, those are for each country, it maps out the different livelihoods on, on top of the, um, you know, administrative areas that people are undertaking. And it's on this foundation, once we understand how people uh, make their livings, then we can say, okay, well, if there's a drought coming, and there's not going to be forage for people's animals, then we can say the the livelihoods for people, especially the poorest people in this particular area, are going to be really adversely impacted. There's, you know, uh, prices are going to be, terms of trade for them are going to be unfavorable. They're not going to be able to purchase additional foods. Um, their animals uh, could, could die or become less productive, meaning that they won't get as much uh, for the sale of that animal perhaps, and also they won't uh, obtain as much of a return in terms of the volume of milk perhaps is produced, so that will affect uh, nutritional status. Or animals won't be as fertile when they're unhealthy, so that will um, also have an adverse impact on their economic status of the household, and hence their ability to meet their um, food and other basic needs. So that's livelihood zones. Um, you can download those data for all of our um, presence countries. Then we get really um, uh, exciting. I don't know. I, I'm really excited about the the remote. I'm excited about all the data. But uh, <laughs> uh, you,
0: I'm getting excited over here too. I'm <laughs> like, and then what? <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> um,
1: so what's inside that remote sensing imagery tile when you click on it on the on the website? Is it takes you to the data portals of all of our FuseNet partners. So, US uh, Geologics. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. So, I mean, I know we have a limited amount of time, so I'll try to refrain from going into all of the details. But, you know, um, USGS, NASA's data on the Famine Early Warning Systems Network land data assimilation system, which um, uh, allows uh, more effective use of limited available hydroclimatic observations. Um, and it's it's been adapted uh, for routine use, specifically for FUSENET decision support. NOAA, of course, which um, is is fun- fundamental to our um, climate-related analyses and generating those forecasts that we rely on to produce those projections into the future of of who's going to be food insecure, where are they located, what's the um, depth of insecurity, food insecurity that they're going to be facing. And of course, uh, University of California Santa Barbara is there with their renowned CHIRPS product, and then a new product um, called CHIMES, which are it's an it, those are integrated pro- products that use uh, satellite rainfall estimates combined with ground-based observations from like rain gauges, weather stations, to produce a, a rainfall product that has greater uh, geographic coverage, but is also informed by uh, ground reference data. So. Um, lots of really exciting, um, you could go, you could go, you could spend a lifetime
0: on those sites. That's really exciting. I was, I was thinking how far out can you actually project famine? I mean, like, could you project that for like 2025? So
1: for acute food insecurity, um, our forecasts are, um, they go out about eight months, right? So, Uh um, so famine is another question. Um, what we are, what we're usually talking about, is projecting acute food insecurity. Uh, mm-hmm. Famine to have a famine determination requires more data and specifically meeting criteria that are established and agreed upon by the IPC, and that that requires like data in the here and now. So we need to have. To say say a famine is likely or ongoing, uh, we need to have at least 20% or more of an area's population that's facing an extreme lack of food, Uh, 30% 30 or more of children who are acutely malnourished, um, and then the crude death rate exceeding 2 per 10,000 per day. Um, And then once those data are available, then there's a national technical working group that weighs in on you know the, the strength of the evidence there's also um, uh, and the ipc global support unit under the guidance of the ipc steering committee will have a, a kind of a famine review committee um and then make sure because when you de- when you declare something like as a, like a famine this is famine with a capital f that you know this is a really serious uh serious thing that requires the evidence to underpin it one of the one of the challenges that's emerged more frequently in recent years has to do with the ability to collect the data that are required to make a famine determination. So when when famine was primarily driven by agricultural failures, drought, for example, that that context does not preclude uh, data collection field teams from going in and collecting the information, in particular, the information related to mortality, Mm -hmm. but also information related to uh, child malnutrition and acute food insecurity among children. Um, But what we're seeing more and more often is that in places where there's um, concern about the potential for famine, it's also characterized by conflict and insecurity, which prevents uh, survey teams from going in and doing that critical primary data collection. Um, so this is a this is a real challenge that that community faces right now.
2: Yeah, and you bring up conflict in that discussion and how, so I think a lot of our listeners on their mind right now is gonna be the crisis in Ukraine and, and its effects on global food insecurity. So can you talk about the number of variables that are exacerbating the current situation and what you're seeing? Uh, So,
1: I mean, it's a great question. And I think it's a a question that we've all been asking ourselves, um, even prior to the actual increased incursion of Russia into Ukraine. So where to start? Okay. So as we all know, Ukraine is a country that produces for the entire world, uh, significant quantities of wheat in particular, sunflower-related products. Um, these are the, the big exports, in addition to maize, which is often exported as animal feed. Um, so Ukraine has been a big producer for that. And so once this invasion occurred, and in particular once Ukraine has been precluded, prevented from uh, exporting their crops by you know blockading of uh, the Black Sea ports, this has really had tremendous impact on the entire global system for agricultural commodities so it's the impacts are not just on those three dominant products that i've mentioned but you know and if people can't access wheat to eat what can they access locally and then what does that do to prices locally right so you see uh, huge impacts around the world and for different reasons, right? Some places it's because they can no longer get wheat or they can't get wheat at a price that they need, at a, at a price that they can afford, that people can afford. Um, there are some places they may be able to substitute for a loss of wheat, for example, but they may not, they may be suffering from an inability to access fertilizer. So um, that's been another, another impact of the of the invasion of Ukraine by Russia is um, that Fertilizer is no longer able to be distributed throughout the, the global market as it used to be because um, Russia and Belarus in particular are uh, large exporters of fertilizer. And so, especially in the beginning, um, fertilizer prices shut up, availability went down, and there continues to be extreme concern about you know, the inability of fertilizer to reach markets because the concern may be more related to a chronic food security Situation than in the immediate uh, future, an acute food insecurity situation. But the concern is that if you don't have fertilizer on hand now, what are the implications of that in the coming months and even the coming years yeah. for the countries to yeah. produce the food that they need? So these are these are these are just a few of the concerns. And and again, um, so one of the things that that FUSENET analysts have been working on is. In addition to looking at uh, what's happening in Ukraine itself, um, the agricultural production that you know is or is not able to happen there. And what's interesting is that the recent data coming in are indicating that maybe 80% of uh, agricultural land in Ukraine is under control of Ukraine. So they've been able to produce, but in addition to looking at What's happening inside Ukraine, we've also been looking, okay, for each of Fusenet's countries that we cover, <clears throat> what have been the specific, what's the specific nature of the impacts in each of those places? So for the whole globe, you can look at the FAO Global Food Price Index and you can see for everybody that, that uh, food price index went up. Wow. But How is that expressed in each country? Um, or is it not necessarily expressed in, in terms of food? Is it in terms of uh, fuel price? Uh, increases or fertilizer access and, and price increases. So we've been looking um, looking at that, trying to track it. One of the challenges now is that as the crisis has kind of continued to become part of a kind of a new normal, you of know, sussing out what are the impacts that are specifically attributable to Russia's inv- invasion of Ukraine it becomes harder to, to kind of disentangle. But we continue to to kind of keep an eye on it because it's, um, likely or it's, it's um, expected that the impact of the, the war on Ukraine um, on poverty, it could push um, up to 40 million people, additional people, into poverty, food insecurity in the coming year. And in addition to that, uh, in addition to the increases in poverty, you know, something like 15 million more undernourished people globally, um, reduced dietary quality for 73 million people globally. So Again, the impacts are likely to be felt primarily in rural areas um, where high fertilizer prices can be the primary driver of um, increased poverty and hunger. Um, So we continue to track it, but I think that the um, consequent and (laughs) also at the same time concurrent, I guess you could call it the overlapping um, crises of COVID-19 and uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine has created—I um, don't think we can say necessarily unprecedented—but has has uh, created just um, staggering um, amount of food insecurity across the globe, um, and we are going to be feeling the effects of it for for years to come.
0: Wow. So I think we were going to ask you something like what keeps you awake at night, but we might have already got that answer. (laughs) Um, Anything that's given you
1: hope? My goodness. Um, Well, sure. Uh, Every single day, I have the opportunity to work with people who, regardless of their area of expertise, whether they are agroclimatologists or survey methodologists or communications people who understand the importance of the message and how to get it out to the rest of the world, right? Whatever your skill and talent is, people are bringing it to the table to work on these critical issues. Um, you ask kind of what, what keeps me awake at night? This, you know, this is a big piece of the picture, but um, what we're seeing now where you have this confluence of uh, a changing climate, a warming climate, right? We're we're just starting to see. This is just the the tip of the iceberg. I really worry how <laughs> our climate is not cooling off, right? And so we can anticipate that, you know, things like we saw in India, where they had anticipated a really good wheat crop, um, and then they had this huge heat wave, and that brought down their estimates. How? Um, how much more frequent are those kinds of impacts going going to be going forward into the future? You combine that with um, the massive loss of biodiversity that we're currently experiencing, and the fact that it is uh, generating um, emergence of zoonotic disease, right? Um, this confluence, and we can look at it through uh, one health perspective, where we understand <clears throat> that human health and nutrition and well-being, is fundamentally dependent on the health of animals and the ecosystem. What we saw in the past year or so where we've got climate driving food insecurity, we've got disease, zoonotic disease emergence in terms of COVID-19 driving acute food insecurity. These are things that are um, global in scope and require a global response and globally empowered and impassioned people to bring all of those skill sets and um, kind of a focus on mission around the table to say how can we together address these problems that threaten all of us? Um, and so at the same time that these are the kinds of problems that keep me up at night at the same time knowing, communities of people out there who care about these issues and who are willing to bring all of themselves um their their skill sets their passions to kind of pitch in and address these um you know fundamental existential problems that we're facing together Mm -hmm. at the same time gives me hope
2: wow that's fantastic to learn more about the network and we we just want to thank you so much for your time and we want to remind the listeners go to FUSE.net and check out all the data, all the products, and all the insights that Kirsten's team um, and USAID and the FUSE network um, produces. So thank you again for your time today, Kirsten.
1: Thank you so much, Gwyneth and Terry. It's been wonderful to talk to you.
2: Thank you very much for joining us today. It was such a great discussion. Please join us again next week for another conversation on human geography and human security on Through the Human Geography Lens. If you're interested in learning more about human geography and the WWHD, check us out at wwhd.org, where you can find more than 5,000 cataloged human geography datasets and access presentations and recordings for more than 50 data driven events. I'm Gwyneth Holt. And I'm Terry Ryan. Thanks for joining us, and we hope to see you again next time. We really appreciate your support. If you enjoy the show, please take a moment to leave us a review and a rating on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast platform. And we hope you'll share the podcast with your friends on social media. Thanks again for listening.